on this Sunday morning. Amen. Been a little, uh, you probably get a hint from the screen uh, what the theme is this morning. It's been a, a couple weeks of just a lot of reading, you know. Not really. But I, I actually read one of the books that I, I read a couple different books, and of course I immersed myself in the scripture on this theme this morning. But one of the books I read, and I'll quote, one of the quotes I'll have this morning will be from a book called The Most Encouraging Book About Hell Ever. Isn't that kind of an interesting title? And it was, actually. Believe it or not, it really was. So, But let's delve into this. There's the story of a man who went on vacation uh, from their home in Alaska to Florida, and the man arrived a day earlier than his wife, and he waits for his wife to come to stay with him the next day. Well, this guy is technologically challenged. He doesn't quite know how to use his cell phone. We have any of those in here? We have probably more than a few. But he tries to send his wife a text message the evening before she comes. Well, unfortunately, in sending the text message, you know, have you ever sent a text message to the wrong person? Like just a few weeks ago, I got a text from Jason Feathers, and it says, hey, Bill, pick me up a cup of coffee, would you? <laughs> I wasn't coming to his house. <laughs> so I texted him back and said, Jason, I assume this wasn't for me. And he said, you'd be correct. <laughs> so, so this guy's uh, technologically challenged. He tries to send his wife this text, but he picks the number of a friend of his. And unfortunately, this friend of his had died the day before. And this dead man's wife gets the message instead. And the message says, having fun, but it sure is hot down here. I can't wait for your arrival here soon. (laughs) That's bad, isn't it? Then we have the story of a grandfather who took his four-year-old grandson to buy donuts. And on the way, the granddad asks his grandson, well, which way is heaven? So the boy points to the sky. And then his father says, well, which way is hell? And the boy points to the floor of the car. And Grandpa then says, well, then where are you going? And he says, I'm going to Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Wouldn't that be an interesting cult, that that's, that's what they teach, that when you die, you go to Dunkin' Donuts? There was a man that when something bad would happen, would always use the phrase, well, it might be worse. And one day a friend said to him, well, I have something to tell you. And you won't be able to use your favorite phrase because it couldn't possibly be worse. I said, what? And he said, well, I dreamed last night that I died and went to hell. And sure enough, his friend said, well, it might be worse. And his friend was just astonished and amazed. And he said, come on now, how could it be worse? To which the man replied, it might be true. That's not so funny, is it? That's not so funny. And honestly... Our theme this morning is not funny, but it's needed. It's necessary. We call the gospel good news, and it is. You know, gospel literally means good news, and it means really good news. But it's only good news. Have you ever thought about this? It's only good news because of the bad news reality that precedes the good news. We human beings are, in fact, in a bad situation because we are sinful. And sin is a power that controls us and it shapes our destiny apart from Christ. We underestimate sin. We trivialize what it means to be a sinner. People take sin way too lightly. But we are absolutely powerless 
to free ourselves from the grip of sin in our lives. And what's more, this sin absolutely earns us eternal punishment. The bad news is that there is sin, and the bad news is that we are, by any measure, but especially when measured against the holiness of God, we are sinners. And because we are sinners, and because we are unable to free ourselves from sin's grip, the worst part of the bad news is another piece of news, there is justice. There is justice. And because there is justice, we are destined for eternal punishment. Now, a few years ago, there was a book which became a movie called Heaven is for Real. Now, without going into a lengthy commentary on the value of a book like that, let me appropriate that book's title this morning and change it slightly for the sermon title, Hell is for Real. There is a real place that the Bible calls hell. And this real place is the place where every one of us here deserves to spend eternity. We all deserve it. If you believe the Bible at all, you cannot ignore the reality of hell. If you accept the words of Jesus, the words that sound nice and sweet, words like God so loved the world, or love one another, or many of the words that we read in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for example, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or later in the same chapter of Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the merciful, so they shall receive, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We like hearing those things, don't we? If we accept and we believe these words, then let's not be cafeteria Christians. By that I mean, let's not, you know, you go to a cafeteria and what do you do? You pick and you choose, right? You pick the things you like, you just uh, walk by the things you don't like. I'm going to pick this and not this. Picking and choosing what we like best, we pick the comfort food maybe that we enjoy the most and we leave some of those nasty vegetables that we don't like aside. If we believe any of the words of Jesus, then we cannot ignore the more difficult things that Jesus himself said in the word of God, the harder truths. Words like from Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, where Jesus says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And later in that same chapter, Verse 46, and he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment. And in John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. In Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you about whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And Mark chapter 9, verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Jesus, Jesus was the one who told us that hell is a place of weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is the one who told us that hell is the place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is the one that told us that a failure to repent meant that one would perish forever in the damnation of hell. He told us that it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? It would be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than for those who heard his word and did not obey it. Sobering stuff. Not just sweetness in life, is it? But it's truth, folks. It's truth. The truth is Jesus himself is hell's best defender. If we gladly embrace the teachings of incarnate love, and that's what Jesus is, he is love embodied. If we gladly embrace his teaching when he speaks words of comfort, when he speaks to us words of life, must we also not pay attention to the words of incarnate justice when he speaks of judgment and punishment and hell? That's what we'd like to do, isn't it? We'd like to pick and choose the happier truths and ignore or minimize those truths that are harder for us to understand or harder for us to accept. But how can we do that and remain faithful to Scripture, which we do, after all, call the Word of God? If it's the Word of God, it's the whole Word of God and not just the parts we like. Scripture describes hell as fire, unquenchable fire, the lake of fire, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal punishment, the wrath to come, torments, condemnation, woe. Scripture also describes hell as a fiery furnace. It describes it as the lake of burning sulfur, everlasting contempt, darkness, exclusion, damnation, retribution, the second death. I don't think any of these sound very good, do you? The doctrine of eternal punishment has fallen on hard times. Hell is a truth that has at least been minimized by even segments of the church and in many ways lost, not just in our culture, but again, in parts of the church at large. Several years ago, Albert Moeller wrote, someone suggested that a good many modern Christians wanted to air condition hell. The effort continues. Today, some in movements such as the emerging church commend the same agenda and for the same reason. Are we embarrassed by the biblical doctrine of hell? And let's be honest, some Christians are. We're embarrassed by it. We feel the need almost to apologize for it. There are some who are so embarrassed by the idea that they call the idea of hell sadistic. One study showed that 64% of people in America think they're going to some sort of heaven that they believe in, but only 1% think they might go to hell. Timothy Keller wrote, if Jesus, the Lord of love, the author of grace, spoke about hell more often and in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. We must come to grips with the fact that Jesus said more about hell than Daniel, Isaiah, Paul, John, and Peter put together. Before we dismiss this, we have to realize we are saying to Jesus, the preeminent teacher of love and grace in history, I am less barbaric than you, Jesus. I am more compassionate and wiser than you. Did you ever think of it that way when we diminish hell? That we're saying, well, you know, maybe it's just annihilation. Maybe we just cease to exist. You know, well, maybe 
everybody gets a chance to go to heaven. Or maybe you have a chance, these are different things that people think. Maybe you go for a little while and then everybody ends up in heaven, right? You know, these are the different things that people think. But it's not what Scripture teaches. It's not what Scripture teaches. And when we think those things, when we continue to uh, relay those things to people we know, then we're just saying, I'm more compassionate than Jesus. But Jesus had these things to say that we've already looked at about hell. So my brothers and sisters, hell is for real. And it's an important doctrine that we ignore at our peril. A couple weeks ago at the Knights of the Square Table meeting, I mentioned to the guys that this was the message that I was working on. And I noted in the conversation that this is not a message that we hear often here at TCF or in many churches, actually. And Jim Garrett remarked that in a different kind of church, you might actually hear hell mentioned more often. And he was thinking of the kind of church where there may be many unbelievers. And so there's kind of a need to mention hell more often. Well, since Jim's always right, and I always take very seriously anything he says, he's not here to defend himself today, so. But I began to think about why would we need to hear such a message at TCF? Because it got me thinking, okay, well, what's the reason? I felt a sense of direction. This is what I'm supposed to do. Why is this important today to remember, to recognize this doctrine that hell is for real and there are lost souls that we all know who will spend eternity there? And I actually, as I was thinking about this and praying about this message and studying for this message, I came up with several reasons. The first is that I never want to assume that everyone here is in Christ. On any given Sunday morning at TCF. Now, most of you I know personally and most of us I know are truly in Christ, really in Christ. That is, we completely and only trust in Jesus, in His work on the cross, in His blood shed for our sins, for our eternal destiny. And we also know that that trust has led to changed hearts and changed lives. So in our classic understanding of what it means to be in Christ, I know everybody here is saved. Most people here are saved. Most people here are saved. So I don't want to assume that absolutely everybody is saved. We're saved from sin. We're saved from eternal death. We're saved from hell. But at least one reason to preach about hell is that I don't want to assume that everybody here truly is a believer in Christ and truly is saved. And if you're not, I want you to hear what the Word of God says about your eternal destiny if you're not in Christ. So a reason for preaching about hell at TCF is perhaps there's someone here this morning who's in danger of going there, in danger of spending eternity there. Another reason for preaching about hell is the potential danger of falling away. Now, I know there's different thinking about this in the church at large and maybe even here at TCF. If you have a more Calvinistic approach to this issue and you believe in TULIP, and if you don't know what TULIP is, you're not Calvinist anyway, but the P in TULIP is perseverance of the saints. Another way you might want to say that is once saved, always saved. And so if you're in that camp, you think that um, there's no such thing as falling away. In other words, you're paid up on your fire insurance, you can't fall away. But let's consider this. Even though a more reformed perspective would tell us that if you fall away, you were never really saved in the first place, if you quote-unquote fall away. And if you come from a more Arminian perspective, you might think you can possibly sin away your day of grace. 
But both camps, whether you're a little more Calvinistic or a little more Arminian, or I think most of us are somewhere in between, you still have to wrestle with scriptures like Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 26. Listen to this passage. It's a very sobering passage. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So either camp, again, Calvinist on one side, Arminian on the other side, still must receive this passage of Scripture as a warning. The Reformed perspective must say, don't ignore this truth and really genuinely turn to Christ for your salvation. The Arminian perspective must say, don't fall away from Christ. Stay close to Christ. Obey His Word. Take seriously your faith. Don't grow complacent because that's a recipe for falling away from the faith. And the foundational truth in both ways of thinking, and this is something where both camps would be absolutely in agreement because they both believe in the authority of Scripture, hell is for real. And it's a place that no one wants to spend eternity. The doctrine of hell is also important because think about this. It's the only way to begin to grasp how much Jesus really loves us and how much he did for us on the cross. Think of what happened to Jesus on the cross. You know, we're, we're just a little over a month away from our Holy Week services and we ponder these things in our Maundy Thursday and in our Good Friday service. We ponder these things. But let's think now just for a little bit. We often focus on the physical torture and the pain that Jesus endured. And at least that's something we can partially understand, okay? Because we've all experienced pain and we can kind of magnify that in our minds and begin to understand that. It was an awful part of the price he paid, so it's right for us to ponder this when we consider the cost of our salvation. But think about this. When Jesus was on the cross, he said it himself. He was forsaken by the Father. Think about this. It's in Matthew 27, verse 46, where Jesus is on the cross, and it says about the ninth hour, the ninth hour of the day, not the ninth hour he was on the cross, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama thamachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, here's Jesus hanging on the cross, God the Son. He had known complete, unbroken fellowship with God the Father for all eternity past until that moment on the cross. And all of a sudden, that unbroken fellowship was gone. Wow. In some sense, Jesus had to be cut off from the favor of and the fellowship with the Father 
that had been his eternally because he was bearing the sins of his people and therefore enduring God's wrath. That's a remarkable expression, if you think about it, being forsaken by God. And it relates to hell, folks. Again, we focus on the physical suffering of Jesus, but the spiritual and emotional suffering had to have been, must have been greater still. The separation from God. And whatever else hell is, that's a part. Certainly that's a part of what hell is, what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, what he took on himself in our place. We read in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So his suffering on the cross included all this. He died in our place because of us, because of our sinfulness, and he suffered the pain that must somehow be a part of hell. He experienced separation from God the Father. And this, I think, as much as anything that he experienced, caused his intense suffering for you and for me. I think it's important that we think about that and not just say, wow, look at the torture, the physical pain that he endured. It was the manifestation of God's hatred of sin, Barnes Notes tells us, to his soul, Jesus' soul, in some way which he has not explained that he experienced in that dread hour. It was suffering endured by him that was due to us and suffering by which and by which alone we can be saved from eternal death. We read of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. The rich man, what what does he say? I'm thirsty. He's desperately thirsty. And what did Jesus say on the cross? He said, I thirst. Now clearly there was a physical reason for that. He was losing blood right? He was thirsty. But do you think there's also a spiritual element here? I think there is. I think there is. The bottom line is this. The water of life, the very presence of God the Father was taken from Jesus. And unless we come to grips with the doctrine of the reality of hell, we will never, ever begin to truly understand the depths of what Jesus did for us when he went to the cross for you and for me. Keller writes again, his body was being destroyed in the worst possible way, but that was a flea bite compared to what was happening to his soul. When he cried out that his God had forsaken him, he was experiencing hell itself. But consider, if our debt for sin is so great that it's never paid off there, but our hell stretches on for eternity, then what are we to conclude from the fact that Jesus said the payment was finished? After only three hours, well, we learn that what he felt on the cross was far worse and deeper than all of our deserved hells put together. When Jesus was cut off from God, he went into the deepest pit, 
and most powerful furnace beyond all imagining, he experienced the full wrath of the Father. And he did it voluntarily for us. And on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That song we sang this morning in Christ alone is a gospel-saturated song. Let me ask, has anybody ever experienced a conversation like this? Someone says to you, well, I believe in a loving God, but I don't believe in Jesus. And then you might ask, well, why? Why don't you believe in Jesus? And they say something like, well, my God is too loving to punish anyone forever for sin. This sentiment is held by many in our culture. And it reveals a tremendous understanding of both God and the cross of Christ. Why is that? Because the reality is that God himself, God the Son, the incarnate Christ, took the punishment. God the Father did not impose this punishment on someone else. He took it on himself. He took it on himself. So when someone says they believe in some sort of a vague, loving God, our question, those of us who are put our faith in Christ, should be something like this. What did it cost your kind of God to love us and to receive us? Where and when did this God pay any kind of price for that love? And of course, that might lead the person to respond, I don't think it was necessary to pay any kind of price. Yet consider the irony of thinking that way. Not only does this negate the sinfulness of sin, and we could spend quite a bit of time talking about how it does that, but in this person's effort to make God more loving, what they've done, think about it, they've actually made God less loving. Why is that? That person, God's love, included no action. It's kind of a sentimental, squishy, oh, gee, I love you kind of love. That's the kind of love that our culture thinks is real. It's a kind of love that doesn't require anything of us. It requires no sacrifice. It requires no deeds. It's not demonstrated by any kind of action. It's not love at all. We couldn't sing Amazing Grace to a God like that. We couldn't sing from the hymn that says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We couldn't sing to that kind of a God whose love is just squishy and sentimental and emotional and has no action behind it. Amen? But because of the cross of Jesus, we know what real love is. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 tells us this. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So if hell is not real and people are not really in danger of going there, we cannot even begin to understand our complete dependence on God. We can't even begin to understand how sinful sin really is, even the smallest sins. We can't even begin to understand the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ demonstrated for us on that cross. To understand the good news of the gospel, we must understand the bad. And think of this too. Here's something I'll bet you've not heard in too many sermons. Hell glorifies God. Hell 
glorifies God. People might ask, what kind of a loving God is filled with wrath? But as Jim Grinnell pointed out so clearly a few weeks ago on his sermon on teach me to hate, you remember that one? Huh? Hating sin is a part of loving God. And if God's hatred of sin forms the foundation for our hatred of sin and our love of God, what does that mean to us, right? Think about this too. In a book called Hope Has Its Reasons, a writer named Becky Pippert writes this. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Pippert then quotes E.H. Gifford. Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. She concludes, if I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion. That's what my wrath is. That's not what God's wrath is. But his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loved with his whole being. We may be uncomfortable with the idea of hell, and if we're not at least a little bit uncomfortable, then I think there's something wrong with us. But it helps me to think about it as a measure of what God was willing to endure to love me. The hard parts of the Bible are just that. They're hard. They're hard. They're difficult. But the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord. Your law is my delight. And we know that in Psalm 119 that the law is almost a synonym for word, isn't it? So your word is my delight. And if the word teaches about hell, can that be our delight? Can that be our delight? Can we at least rest in that? So the reality of hell is a hard doctrine to embrace, but hell vindicates God's honor. Let me read an extensive passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 5 through 12. Hang with me here. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It goes on from verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for every good work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not throw God under the bus when it comes to the doctrine of hell. Okay? As hard and difficult a truth as this reality is. God is good, Kevin DeYoung writes, and his ways are always right. 
it is a measure of our maturity that we not only affirm the truth of God's Word, but rest in the goodness and rightness of it. Christians should have anguish in heart at the thought of eternal suffering, but we should also see the glory of God in the Bible's teaching on eternal punishment. So when hell is removed from the gospel, the gospel becomes meaningless. Remember what we said earlier, you have to have the bad news before the good news is really good news. So all this trouble, sometimes even believers have with God's eternal wrath, is often an indicator of two things. It can be an indicator of a low view of the Word of God. In other words, the Word of God is not authoritative. It is not our source of faith and practice. It can also be a picture of a low view of sin. But as the Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Don't you love that title? Don't you love some of those titles? Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He wrote this, There is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. Here's something else you're not going to hear every day in a sermon. God doesn't love you just the way you are. God doesn't love you just the way you are. Now, you know, I, I, people are well-meaning when they say that. They mean that God, ex- he, he reaches out to us and He accepts us. But think about this. Even if you're a really good Christian, God doesn't love you just the way you are. God the Father loves God the Son, Jesus Christ. And when you are in Christ, when you believe the gospel, when you are trusting completely in His sacrifice for your sins, then and only then are you absolutely secure in God's love and not in danger of eternal fire. Because it's then that God sees you through the lens of Jesus' act of love, through the blood that Jesus set, shed on the cross, sacrifice, sacrificially taking his, my sin, my sin upon himself. My sin has been punished, folks. My sin has been punished, and I've received the gift of grace. My sin's been punished by a just God, but I didn't pay the price, and I can't. We say God is love. Here's the book, the quote from the most encouraging book about hell ever. We say God is love and somehow believe this pretty much sums it up, leaving us with a God about the size, shape, and jocularity of Santa Claus. But as I've often said, God's attributes shouldn't always be should always be seen together as a whole, not separately. God is love, but He is also just. Therefore, His justice is loving. God is holy, but He is also love. So His love is holy, etc., etc., etc. We could go on with the characteristics of God. So eternal punishment highlights the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and makes it more meaningful. Thus, hell glorifies God. Finally, one of the best reasons for preaching about hell at a church like TCF, where most of us, if not all of us in this room this morning, are in Christ, is that the horror to come for many should spur us on to fulfill the Great Commission and do our small part in helping keep others from going there. It's about the harvest of souls, folks. The harvest of souls is a harvest of dead people, people who are dead in their sin, introduced to the gospel, and brought to new life 
in Christ. Here at TCF, we do that through our world missions, which we'll highlight in a few weeks with our annual missions conference. The harvest of souls in our church is also in our church outreaches, like the Good News Club, like the VBS. But, you know, probably where the harvest of souls is most potent is in each of us as individual, in our own circles of influence, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our sports activities, in our families, in all of our friendships and relationships, where we have the privilege, because we are in Christ, to bring the light of Christ with us wherever we go. At TCF, we're about training laborers for the harvest and all of us going as his laborers into the harvest. And so we're trained to understand the totality of the gospel of Christ because it's not good news unless there's the bad news first. The gospel includes the fact that hell is for real. Let's not water down the gospel by forgetting that God's not only a loving God, but He's a just God. And sin is way worse than we make it. And Jesus, on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin that we so richly deserved, taking God's wrath on Himself so we could spend eternity with Him and not receive the deserved penalty for our sin in a devil's hell. So this morning, as we come to a close, I want to respond in whatever way is most appropriate for you. You fit in one of three categories this morning. If you're not in Christ, I hope you heard what hell's like. At the outset of the message, and we heard all those descriptions, Jesus himself said, this is what hell is. So if you're not in Christ, you need to receive God's grace in Christ to wipe away your sins and save you from eternal death. You need to respond this morning. You need to respond this morning. Don't let another minute go by. You need to respond this morning, okay? You can find an elder or a trusted believer here and talk to us, and I think in a minute we're going to give you an opportunity to even come if you want to do that. We'll guide you to the cross. We'll pray with you. Secondly, if you're not sure you're saved or you think you might be among those who've fallen away, okay? You need to seek out someone to pray with you too. You need to seek out someone to pray with you too because as we read in Hebrews a few minutes ago, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now I'm guessing that most of us here, I don't know, I'm guessing most of us here are not in either of these categories, but I want the rest of us this morning to pray about how do I view the fact that hell is for real? Can we rest in the goodness and the rightness of it? Can we rest in God's justice and His judgment? But can we also grieve the reality of hell for all those people we know around us who are in serious danger of going there? And can we ask God to use us as His instrument in bringing these to the cross? Can we be more intentional? Can we be more regular to do that by our prayers for these people, by our words, and by our actions? So how will you respond this morning? So I want to ask, is, uh, did Jim Downing slip out? There he is. Thank you, Jim. We're not going to spend a long time, and you may be able to respond right where you're seated, but I also want to give you an opportunity to come 
if you want to be prayed for. And I'm going to pray, and we're going to just spend a few minutes. I, everybody needs to respond in some way this morning because the three categories I've come up with encompass all of us, don't they? Amen? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your love and your grace and your mercy. We're grateful, Father, that those of us who are in Christ can rejoice in the reality that we have escaped a horrible, eternal punishment because of the blood of Jesus. So we give you glory and honor and praise for that, and thank you, Father, that we are among the redeemed. And Father, I pray for those here who may not have received that gift of grace from you, may have never made a decision to follow Christ, may have never appropriated the grace of God to cover their sins, Lord. I pray, Heavenly Father, you'd bring conviction about the reality of hell to these, Lord God. I pray for that third category, those who are maybe teetering on the fence this morning. Maybe uh, I'm not walking with the Lord. I'm, I'm in danger of falling away. I pray, Father, for the gift of repentance for these. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would be faithful. We would be a faithful people, Lord God, to shine the light of Christ in every arena that you bring us into, in every area of our own individual circles of influence, in our families, Lord, among our friends, in all of our extracurricular activities, in our schools, Lord, Lord, in our workplaces, that we would be your ambassadors, Father. We would be those who would help lead people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And, Father, we would be your instruments in rescuing people from eternal death in the real place called hell. We commit these things to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just spend a few minutes. Jim, go ahead. Let's just spend a few minutes, and uh, you can come or you can pray, and then Dave will close us here.
Father, we thank you for reality of hell. Thank you that you do bring these things to our attention. Your wrath and your judgment. And we also see the reality of your forgiveness as we read in Psalms 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Father, thank you for Bill's word today. Lord, help us to hate sin. Help us, Father, as we see those about us in our workplace. Where are they spending eternity? Father, we thank you that you are merciful, but you are also just, and there is wrath. Help us to not stay on one side or the other, but to rightly divide the word of truth and see these are two truths for each of us how we conduct ourselves before you. Lord, I pray you have blessed this congregation today as we go out into our mission field that we would not be intimidated by the enemy's lies when we're to share about you. We thank you, Father, for this day and what you have done and said today. Help us, Lord, to ponder these truths and not just think about it, but to put it into action. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are dismissed.